Chapter Seven, Part Two of Making of a Nation. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Making of a Nation: The Beginnings of Israel's History by Charles Foster Kent. Chapter Seven, Part Two. Four Ways by Which the Israelites Won Their Homes. The impression conveyed by the later passages in the Book of Joshua that the Hebrews within a period of seven years became complete masters of the land of Canaan, is different from that made by the older records and judges. These indicate that the process was gradual, extending through several generations. Except at two or three great crises, this conquest appears to have been peaceful rather than by the sword, a process of settlement and colonization rather than of capture. Today throughout many parts of Palestine one may still see, close to the cities, the black tents and the flocks of the Bedouin immigrants. In the days of the Hebrew settlement, the Canaanites were largely confined to the fertile valleys. The uplands were still open to the men from the desert. Here the Hebrews pitched their tents and finally built their rude homes. In this more favorable environment, their families and their flocks gradually increased until they began to encroach upon the territory already occupied by the older inhabitants. The resulting quarrels and differences were sometimes settled by the appeal to the sword, more frequently by alliances sealed by intermarriages. The early narrative in the ninth and tenth chapters of the Book of Judges gives a vivid picture of the resulting condition. In the strong Canaanite city of Shechem, Hebrews and Canaanites had so far intermarried that Abimelech, a product of this intermarriage, succeeded his father Gideon as king of the first little Hebrew kingdom. At Shechem, Hebrews and Canaanites also worshipped side by side in the common sanctuary, which was known as the Temple of Baal of the Covenant. Under the pressure of the increased population, certain of the Hebrew tribes migrated and seized new territory. Such a migration is vividly recorded in Judges 17 and 18. The little tribe of the Danites, finding the pressure of their kinsmen on the north and east and that of the Philistines on the west too strong, captured the Canaanite city of Laish at the foot of Mount Hermon, and thus found a permanent home in the upper Jordan Valley. It was a cruel, barbarous age, in which might was regarded as right. Thus Ehud the Benjamite, who treacherously gained admittance into the presence of Eglon, secretly slew this Moabite oppressor of the Hebrews. This act, instead of being condemned, was regarded then, and even by later generations, as an example of courageous patriotism. Was his act justifiable? How would it be regarded in America today? 5. Deborah's Rally of the Hebrews The growing numbers and strength of the Israelites at last alarmed the Canaanites. A certain leader by the name of Sisera formed a coalition of the strong Canaanite cities encircling the plain of Esdralon. The center of this coalition was the powerful city of Megiddo, the ruins of which, on the southwestern side of the plain, still remain to testify to the natural strength of this ancient stronghold. The policy of the Canaanites was to keep the different Hebrew clans apart and thus prevent united action. In the words of the ancient song, In the days of Jael the highways were unused, and travelers walked by roundabout paths. The rulers ceased in Israel. A shield was not seen in five cities, nor a spear among forty thousand. The one who alone appears to have understood the crisis and to have been able to stir the Israelites to action was Deborah, the prophetess of the central tribe of Issachar. Israel's struggle for independence is graphically recorded in the ancient poem found in Judges 5. The later prose version of the incident, found in Judges 4, 
supplements the earlier poem. To a chief of a northern tribe of Naphtali, a certain Barak, she turned as a natural leader in the struggle for independence. Together they sent out the summons to the different northern tribes. The southern tribes of Judah and Simeon were apparently ignored. The distant tribes of Asher, Dan, and Reuben were engrossed in their own local interests and failed to respond. The tribesmen who rallied 40,000 strong on the northern side of the plain of Esdralan represented the great central Hebrew clans. The ancient song, sung by the women as they met the returning warriors, makes it possible to reconstruct the battle scene. Through the broad valleys that led into the plain of Esdralon from the north came the sinewy, unkempt, roughly clad and poorly equipped Hebrew tribesmen, each clan led by its local chief. They had, quote, come up to the help of Jehovah against the mighty, end quote. Tribal patriotism, the memory of past grievances, the desire for plunder, and zeal for Jehovah the God who had led their forefathers through the wilderness into the land of Canaan, stirred their courage and fired them to deeds of valor. Well they chose their battlefield, out on the plain on the northern side of the muddy, sluggish river Kishon. In the slightly rising ground they faced the Canaanite warriors, who came out across the plain from the city of Megiddo, six miles away. The Canaanites were armed with chariots and the best weapons that the early Semitic civilization could produce, but one thing they lacked, courage fired by religious zeal. Again, a striking natural phenomenon appears suddenly to have turned the tide of Israel's fortune. On the eve of battle, a drenching thunderstorm seems to have swept across this alluvial plain, transforming it into a morass and the sluggish Kishon into a rushing, unfordable river. In the words of the ancient triumphal ode, From heaven fought the stars, from their courses fought against Sisera. The river Kishon swept them away, the ancient river, the river Kishon. O my soul, march on with strength. Then did the horse-hooves resound with the galloping, galloping of their steeds. The Hebrew even brings out the sound of the sucking of the horse's hooves in the soft mud. The storm not only gave to the Hebrews, who were on foot, a vast advantage, but it meant to them that Jehovah, whose chariot was the clouds, his weapons the lightning, and who spoke through the thunders, was fighting on their behalf. The victory was overwhelming. Sisera, the Canaanite leader, fled, but only to fall later, ignominiously slain by a woman. Henceforth the Canaanite cities of central Palestine were occupied by the Hebrews. The vanquished were either enslaved or absorbed in intermarriage. From them, however, the Hebrews learned skill in agriculture and received a heritage of art, ideas, and customs that had been developed by the Canaanites for many centuries. How far was this heritage beneficial to the Hebrews? What temptations did it bring to them? Did it mark a step forward in their development? Were the early Hebrews a pure or a mixed race? More important than the spoils and lands which fell to the Hebrews was the new demonstration of Jehovah's ability and willingness to deliver his people, which they received in the battle beside Kishon. Throughout all of Israel's colonial period, the chief force binding the scattered Hebrew tribes together was their faith in Jehovah. The victory greatly strengthened that faith, and prepared the way for the closer union which was necessary before Israel could become a permanent force among the nations of the earth. The vision of what they had been able to achieve through united action never completely faded from the memory of the Hebrews. Their subsequent experiences also tended to revive this memory. Amidst the warring elements in Palestine, a powerful nation was gradually taking form. In the school of hard experience, it was learning the lessons that were fitting it for a large life. 6. THE FINAL STAGE IN THE MAKING OF THE HEBREW NATION 
The final stage in the evolution of Israel is recorded in the opening chapters of 1 Samuel and is best studied in detail in connection with the history of the nation at its zenith. We have studied the forces which made the nation. A brief summary will indicate the transition to the next period, that of the kingdom. A victory over the Canaanites gave the Hebrews possession of the land and left them free to coalesce into a united nation. But the centrifugal tribe spirit for a time proved the stronger. Under Gideon a beginning was made in kingdom-making, but owing to the cruelty and inefficiency of his son Abimelech, the first Hebrew state lasted little more than a generation. The compelling power that finally brought all the rival Hebrew tribes together under a common leader was the conquest of their territory by the warlike, ambitious Philistines. In inspiring the Benjamite chieftain Saul to deliver his countrymen in their hour of shame and peril, Samuel the prophet proved the true father of the Hebrew kingdom. Under the compulsion of common danger, the Israelites not only followed Saul to victory, but also made him their king. From this time on, Israel took its place among the nations of the earth. During their formative period, the Hebrews acquired many characteristics that they have retained throughout their history. From their early nomadic life, they inherited physical strength, hardihood, adaptability even to the most unfavorable environment, courage, perseverance, and that individual initiative and self-reliance which come from protracted struggles against seemingly insuperable odds. It was a harsh but thorough school in which the infant nation Israel was trained. Their life in the wilderness and in the period of settlement also developed an intense love for freedom and that democratic spirit that was the glory of Israel and the foundation of its political institutions. People passing their time chiefly out of doors and enjoying the uplifting stimulus of an unfettered life in the open naturally acquire a feeling of awe and reverence for the god of nature that is often lacking in the city dweller. Especially this is true if, like the early Hebrews, the dwellers in the open feel that need of divine protection which is begotten by constant exposure to danger, hunger, hardship, and hostile foes. The many crises and the signal deliverances that came to the Hebrews not only intensified their faith, but also gave them the consciousness that the god in whom they put their trust was both able and eager to deliver them. Prophets like Moses strengthened the popular sense of Jehovah's immediate presence and interpreted the significance of each event. Israel's early faith was simple, like that of a little child. While its beliefs were crude, its trust was strong. It was this trust and loyalty that carried the child nation through its early crises and ultimately bound together the separate tribes into a united commonwealth. Thus Israel's early history illustrates the fundamental truth that the most essential, the most powerful force in the making of a nation is a simple, practical, everyday religion. Questions for further consideration Should the successful and easy crossing of the Jordan by the Israelites be ascribed to a miracle or to their own promptness in seizing an opportunity unexpectedly offered? In what ways did the religious zeal of the ancient Hebrews in battle differ from the fanatical zeal of the modern Moslem in fighting the Christians, or the zeal of the Japanese before Port Arthur? When, if ever, is assassination justifiable as a political expedient? Give your reasons. Were the Hebrews justified in the methods employed in securing control of Palestine? Is it right for a progressive nation to compel a backward nation to submit? Were the Americans on this ground justified in seizing the lands of the Indians? What were the chief tenets in the early faith of the Hebrews? How did Israel's faith affect its political development? 
In what important ways was religion effective in making the English state, the American Commonwealth? Subjects for further study. 1. The Structure and Literary History of the Book of Judges, McFadden, Introduction to Old Testament, 76-83, Kent, Students' Old Testament, 1, 26 and 27. 2. Conditions in Canaan at the Time of the Hebrew Settlement. Patton, Early History of Syria and Palestine, 157-60, Maspero, Struggle of the Nations, 111-208, Encyclopedia Biblica, 2, 2223-5. 3. The Motives that Inspired the Leaders of the American Revolution, Fiske, Lodge, Bancroft, or Other Writers on this Period. End of Chapter 7 End of The Making of the Nation, The Beginnings of Israel's History, by Charles Foster Kent.